welcome back guys to Una. Uh, I'm Shivani Mesh, uh, your high school junior podcast host. And um, in this episode, we'll be discussing sort of the role of nursing and healthcare um, and healthcare policy. Uh, so today we have um, Dr. H- uh, Durkis, who is a nurse and who's also completed their PhD um, on the podcast. So let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Durkis. Um, Dr. Durkis, do you have anything you want to add uh, before we begin? Oh, I'm just pleased to be with you today and happy to share what I can with your listeners. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so uh, let's start off sort of uh, talking about your early career. Um uh, from like being a teenager to sort of where you are now, what made you decide to um, become a nurse sort of? Yeah, it wasn't such a direct or obvious path for me. I think along the way, there were um, a lot of practical decisions that landed me here. So I did have some family context that pushed me in this direction or led me in this direction. My, my mom's a nurse. She worked in pediatrics for a number of years. Um, and my older sister preceded me through nursing school. Um, in fact, the same nursing school where I, <laughs> I later followed. And, um, but I think I pursued nursing um, in part because it seemed very practical. So uh, I had a grandfather who was a physician. So I also had exposure to other aspects of mm-hmm. medicine and healthcare. Um, I thought that might be a good place for me, but I wasn't sure whether medical school is in my future or to stick with nursing. But it seemed to me that if I, I pursued pre-med in undergrad, that I might come out without a real clear idea of whether medical school is actually something I wanted to pursue. Uh-huh. Um, given that that undergrad curriculum would be um, probably very science focused. And so I'd, I'd have that sort of idea of whether um, sciences were of interest to me. But mm-hmm. that whole clinical side that patient interaction piece, uh, seemed to me that that might still be a bit of a mystery. Whereas in the nursing undergraduate curriculum, clinical experiences are built right in. Uh, It's part of that experience. And uh, so it just seemed very practical. I thought, well, if I come out of school with a nursing degree, I'll have a good idea of whether I want to go to medical school or not. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll also have a very practical degree where if I choose not to, I can go get a job right away. the PhD was not on my radar at all when I entered <laughs> mm-hmm. school. In fact, I was thinking more at the time about engineering, perhaps. My, my dad's an engineer. Mm-hmm. And I even looked into whether I could pursue maybe a dual degree in engineering and nursing. That was very complex, not something <laughs> I pursued. There's very little overlap, mm-hmm. um, at least in coursework. Um, <clears throat> but I think some of that engineering piece I was able to pursue or that part of my personality and brain was able to pursue through the PhD program. Um, where I went to school, there was an integrated BSN to PhD program. Mm-hmm. Uh, a foundation, the Hillman Foundation in New York City had um, designed and, and supported. And so I applied to that program and was accepted and um, integrated the last two years of my undergrad curriculum beginning to take graduate courses, mm-hmm. so undergrad courses for grad courses, and then did um, an additional three years post-undergrad 
where it was full-time graduate school, doctoral studies, um, and then followed up with an additional two years of postdoc training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've definitely had like a different journey probably in nursing than um, most, most nurses do. Um, but that's also like, I feel like everyone's path into, into healthcare is definitely like different starting from like a teenager to like, you know, where they end up going um, and, and working. And I know that many teenagers in high school after like often wonder like what, what kind of career should I take? Like, especially if they're interested in healthcare, there's just, there's just so many occupations, you know, um, like maybe someone to go into healthcare, but they don't want as much schooling or debt as like a doctor. Maybe they want to do dentistry or PT or nursing. So another question that I sort of have is like, what advice would you give to like a teenager who wants to go into the field of healthcare? I think you talked about it a bit, but like, like I said, there are just, there's countless options and each kind of sort of varying lengths of, of education. So do you, could you give us like sort of like reasoning or like a strategy or like what to think about before um, choosing like a career in, in healthcare or kind of like narrowing a decision for a career in healthcare? Sure. I, I don't think this will be all encompassing advice, but you know, talk to a bunch of people and, and you'll collect uh, a toolbox of um, skills and approaches that may help you along your way. I, I think uh, the first point might be built into your question, which is just recognizing that there are so many different roles in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So perhaps as you're beginning, just get a lay of the land, get a sense of how many different clinical um, and frankly, non-clinical roles there are in healthcare. Um, and then even within each of those professions, there there's such a variety of uh, opportunities and ways to be involved also consider the kind of patient interactions that you want and you crave. I think being a nurse, it's very different than being a physician. Mm -hmm. Um, Being a nurse practitioner is different from both of those. Again, um, nurses have the benefit, I'm thinking in the hospital at least, of having a lot of patient interaction time. So yeah, yeah, and like you outlined, it, it just like from one nursing school alone, like you said, there's just countless possibilities of of where to get into healthcare. So I mean, I don't want to overwhelm like the viewers, but <laughs> but there are a lot of options. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with like what you were saying about how um, you know you try to want to f- you you want to try to figure out like what you want to do first, like and taking it like one step at a time um, to really like sort of think do I like this do I like do I like patient interaction or do I want to go to more like clinical like research sort of stuff so So yeah, um, so then now let's talk about uh, you, Dr. Durkis, specifically sort of like your profession and like your research focus and interest. So looking across your website, I saw that like your main focus in research is currently like nursing and sort of like utilizing like the nursing workforce to sort of have a better um, healthcare across the country. So could you like sort of elaborate on that idea, um, sort of like what you've researched so far, sort of some of your findings, like how could we like you know, improve like patient outcome, um, you know, through, through like this sort of research? Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, this is somewhere where I spend quite a bit of my time, so I'm happy to and, and look forward to sharing a bit about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have trained with um, some academics who really 
uh, laid the foundation of nursing workforce research. Um, mm -hmm. So that looks like nurse staffing, you know, how do staffing ratios impact patient outcomes? How does the education of nurses, there's, there's more than one educational path to be licensed right. There's different licensing levels. Um, how does that impact patient outcomes? Um, as well as other structural characteristics, like how does the work environment in which nurses operate um, matter in terms of the outcomes that, that nurses achieve? Mm -hmm. And that's all super important work. It's work that I trained in, like my whole doctoral and postdoctoral education was really steeped in this. Um, it's where I, I learned my earliest skills as a researcher. And, mm -hmm. and I continue to collaborate on that sort of research. Um, and we see the fruits of that research or the impact of that research, uh, mostly in, in policy decisions at various levels. Mm -hmm. So for example, um, in part because of this kind of research that shows that better staffing, so when nurses are caring for fewer patients on any given shift, that the patients do better. And in fact, the nurses do as well in terms of their experience of their job, things like burnout, turnover, things that yeah. um, have existed, problems that have existed for a long time, but the mm -hmm. COVID-19 pandemic have, have brought renewed attention to or, mm -hmm. or heightened our awareness of those things. Um, so California has state staffing laws that say, well, these are safe levels that you can't give more than a certain number of patients to a nurse, depending on the unit and the sort mm -hmm. of thing. And some other states have um, looked into those options, um, not always to great success. Um, you know, the same is true of the education piece. So we're thinking about baccalaureate education um, in the research. We, we know that these better educated nurses, uh, when hospitals hire more of these nurses, the patients cared for in those hospitals tend to have better outcomes. And these are things mm -hmm. like mortality or hospital acquired infections and we could go on length of stay mm -hmm. um, and so the institute of medicine now, now called the national academies of medicine uh, had issued a report that said well we should really be boosting the percent of our nursing workforce that has this baccalaureate education the bsn mm -hmm. um, now we didn't achieve that goal on the timeline that they set out um, uh -huh. but it's aspirational and, and that that development continues um, and there are a number of barriers to to really achieving that in a, in a timely way that you know we can talk about or not but um, so recognizing all of that mm -hmm. that being my background um, I see and then combining that with my clinical experience what I've seen in the hospital as a nurse at the bedside mm -hmm. um, has taken me to my current research interests, which are saying that, okay, well, this is all well and good. We want to improve these and, and pursue these broader workforce development goals. We wanna hire more nurses and produce more nurses, make sure there's adequate numbers, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that uh, any given nurse doesn't have to care for more than a safe patient load or whatever that may be. We also wanna advance the education, the overall education of the nursing workforce composition. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really important too. Um, but a few questions came up. One is, well, so we know in general that it's a good thing uh, for a nurse to care for five patients instead of six patients, right? That's good mm -hmm. for the patient. Yeah. 
But on any given shift, when we're making nurse patient assignments, so we get there at the beginning of the day, someone's in charge of saying, all right, this nurse is going to care for these patients and this mm -hmm. nurse is going to care for this other collection of patients. Um, well, it's often the case, more often than not, I would think, that the number of patients doesn't divide evenly by the number of nurses. And so you yeah. actually have this variation where you're going to have to give five patients to one nurse and six patients to another because there's just no other way to divide. But you can't give mm -hmm. five and a half. <laughs> you, have, yeah. you have to work in whole numbers here. Mm -hmm. Obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> But that raises a question, well, if, if we apply the existing research to that scenario, well, now we're saying that, well, every patient in that six patient assignment relative to the five patient assignment is exposed to that increase in mortality or whatever the adverse outcome might be um, mm -hmm. that you're looking at. And so it's great that the existing research is great for these policy initiatives and workforce development goals. Mm -hmm. um, like safe staffing ratios. Um, but I'm interested in pursuing these smaller level decisions and saying, okay, well, how do we tease out these interactions? So interactions are ways in which characteristics of the patient and the nurse um, encounter each other in an assignment and mm -hmm. change the way that what we see in this other research change the size of that impact. So for example, uh, we know that certain patient aspects, certain vulnerable vulnerabilities of the patient, it could be um, it could be age of the patient, it could be complexity, so number of comorbidities or their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, frankly, some of this drives disparities we see around racial aspects of patients. So black patients, especially older black patients, we see that interact with aspects of nursing. Um, uh -huh. where they're impacted more than other patients may be by um, positive or negative aspects of the nursing workforce. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that if we can get down to that level and really unlock, okay, what's going on here and how can we improve or even optimize how we assign patients to nurses on every shift in hospitals, um, that even as we're pursuing these greater workforce development goals, we can be making better use of the nurses we have given the patients that we need to care for. Uh -huh. Perhaps, um, you know, improve efficiency. Nursing is a huge nurse, uh, human resource. It's a huge expense in hospitals, mm -hmm. um, but also hopefully address some of these disparities as well, um, which would be awesome. You know, it'd be a win-win for everyone. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think many like teenagers, especially, or obviously, because we don't really have that much experience working in a hospital, but realize like down that even like, like you said, like what your research currently focuses on that, like those, you know, tiny details of like, you know, trying to like efficiently, like, um, assign patients to like nurses. Like, I don't think teenagers realizes that, that like, even those like small decisions could like really, um, improve or like either improve or like hinder like, a, um, a patient's outcome. And, and I mean, like we're dealing with like people's like, you know, lives. So obviously we want like the, the best outcome. And, and that's why definitely like research like this is, um, considerably important but um I liked how or I know that you touched on uh patient or like nursing burnout like during uh COVID-19 and like so could you like um maybe sort of explain maybe other uh you know things like if if a student's like interested in a career in nursing right like what are some um 
maybe aspects of nursing that like you should be like prepared for, like maybe if you're working like in a hospital, um, you know, yeah. So like, well, if you're interested in, in a career in nursing, what should you, what should you look out for? Um, maybe like positives, like negatives. Do you have, uh, any advice for, for some teens? That's a good question. Um, so there's a lot of demand for nurses right now. Um, mm -hmm. Some of that is driven by pandemic related um, problems that have come up and, and just shuffling of the workforce. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen in the news that there's uh, more travel nursing, it seems now than before. It, it's been lucrative uh, proposition for a lot of nurses, yeah. perhaps drawn them away from their former settings to go elsewhere. Um, I know that hospitals are looking to hire and they're looking to retain. And so um, there is, there is uh, a lot of attention from the administration side, certainly on the School of Nursing side. Mm -hmm. uh, here, like, there is, there is um, interest in seeing uh, the school boost the number of nurses it can produce uh, and, mm -hmm. and prepare. And, and some of the bottlenecks there are like just having faculty. You mentioned on the outset, like there aren't too many nurses who are pursuing doctoral level um, education and mm -hmm. in certain, certain classes and, and uh, courses uh, or programs of study, that's a requirement, right? You can't, you can't produce other um, doctoral level faculty without having the teaching faculty there to, to get yeah, this yeah. program. So that's, you know, that's a challenge. Um, I think if, you know, I think your listeners are looking to enter nursing school. Um, and so maybe that's where you're asking for advice versus someone who's getting ready to graduate nursing school and is looking for advice on how to find a job, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what to look for in an employer. Um, and that might be where things like, oh, aspects of the work environment and, and how nursing is perceived in the organization and supported and the, the level of autonomy and understanding uh -huh. that profession. There's certainly things to look for there. Um, but I would say one positive side of um, the demand for nurses is, well, you're always going to have, you're always going to be in demand that you, you will have, yeah. uh, especially now, a lot of choice in terms of where you might want to work and mm -hmm. um, the interest in employers in, in finding you, recruiting you, and hopefully training you. That, that's certainly something you want to find in a job. Yeah. So, um, yeah, great advice. Uh, so something that we do in this podcast, um, that I think is really important is that we sort of talk about current issues in the world and how like medicine interacts with them. Um, and especially in this day and age, there are a lot of facts being thrown around, whether, um, it be in relation to the pandemic or, you know, other topics, but sometimes, um, 
misinformation is like I said being spread around and typically um here in the podcast we like to hear opinions from experts in the uh, medical field to sort of clear things up um and I know right now especially with the um overruling of Roe v. Wade and and other factors teenagers are like super interested right now with um healthcare and lawmaking and um and and they're often very involved and actively seeking news on um government and and like I said lawmaking and so I know you specifically teach a, a class concerning healthcare policy. And you mentioned to me that like the Affordable Care Act is often mentioned um, in healthcare politics all the time. But could you like actually elaborate what this bill actually is? Because I feel like a lot of kids, especially now, I, I feel like the act was um, was passed like some time ago that like we were probably like kids when it happened, but like it still sort of affects us now. So like um, yeah, so could you just elaborate what that bill is, what that means to us, um, and how it's like so, sort of like shaped healthcare like right now? Oh, absolutely, sure. So, um, well, the Affordable Care Act, sometimes referred to as the ACA, but the full title is the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right, it was, it was signed into law in 2010, but it's had a very um, by design, it had a phased in implementation. It was about 10 years that different aspects of the, of the plan would, would roll out and come into uh, be implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's we talk about it quite a bit because it's the most significant healthcare reform since Medicare and Medicaid. And mm-hmm. that was passed back in 1965. And so, uh, and, and it wasn't for lack of effort. There were a number of different um, attempts, um, for example, by the Clinton administration in the 90s mm-hmm. to, to pass comprehensive health care reform. And, um, you know, politics are very interesting. You, you really need to find uh, what we call like a policy window where, in essence, the planets aligned, where, mm-hmm. um, uh, where all the interests and particular circumstances of um, every aspect of policy making um, are in the right spot. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the public's attention is in the right place. Usually there's a big problem that comes up mm-hmm. that focuses that attention. Um, the politics are moving along, you know, the, both parties uh, are, are perhaps uh, coalescing around a, a common goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just wasn't the case, uh, it seems in, in the 90s, for example, and yet um, around the time that Barack Obama was um, campaigning during the Democratic primaries, for example, mm-hmm. uh, healthcare really became an issue, um, mm-hmm. in part because Hillary Clinton was a Democratic primary nominee and uh, or, or contender, and um, her experience working with her husband's administration on healthcare really positioned her to make it an issue of the uh-huh. campaign, and uh, frankly. Barack Obama, who uh, ultimately won the nomination and later the, the general election, mm-hmm. uh, was caught off guard. It wasn't <laughs> really something that he came into that um, that election feeling well prepared for and mm-hmm. uh, was under some pressure that really pushed him to come out with a plan. And I mean, could go on and on about sort of the, the interesting twists and turns about how that law was shaped. For example, the individual mandate gets a lot of attention. Um, and it wasn't really something that initially Obama was in favor of and, and sort of had to compromise and, and evolve on that point. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think the major points to keep in mind are that, especially for your listeners who may not have a concept of health insurance and coverage in the U.S. prior to the Affordable Care Act, uh-huh. it's important to know that a lot of people in the U.S. get their health insurance through their employer, and that's fairly unique. Um, and that is a historical fact that goes back to uh, World War II and mm-hmm. that trouble getting, um, well, there was wage freezes or you couldn't negotiate, employers couldn't, couldn't um, offer employees um, more compensation, direct compensation uh-huh. wages. And so there was still this need to compete and attract employees. And so um, health insurance became a way of saying, well, this is that added benefit that we're going to offer um, yeah. as a way of trying in employees. And, and it's really stuck. It's hard to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, the issue is when you lose your, when you lose your job, uh, you lose your insurance when it's tied to your employer, um, right. practically speaking. And so people of working age um, entered the recession of 2008 and 2009 uh, and started losing their jobs. And that was the big problem, losing their jobs and losing their health insurance. And so that was one of the problems that really brought attention to like, okay, we need to do something about health insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing was true of people with preexisting health conditions. If you had a health condition, um, you could be denied insurance or you could be offered insurance, um, that was just cost prohibitive because, you know, you think about insurance, it's supposed to cover an unknown future event. Well, if you already have a health issue and you're going to purchase insurance, the insurance company already knows that you're going to cost them right, quite a bit. Right. And so they're going to have to charge you more. So the Affordable Care Act really tried to address a number of these issues. And there's a few primary um, ways it did this. One was it aimed to expand health insurance coverage. Uh-huh. Uh, it worked to control health care costs. Healthcare costs are the highest. <laughs> we spend more per capita in the U.S. than any other country in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, more we could say about that, but just briefly. And then the last bit is just thinking about improving the healthcare delivery system. And, and so um, some of the mechanisms through which it did this was it expanded or ex- it expanded adult dependent coverage. So um, the law said right off the bat, hey, listen, you can stay on your parents' insurance um, until you're 26. And uh-huh. right away that expanded coverage to over 2 million young adults. Um, so that was a quick way that the law said, okay, boom, you know, through this vulnerable period where um, you're exiting high school, you're exiting college, you're getting your first job, maybe your first mm-hmm. job doesn't offer insurance, maybe you're young, you feel healthy, um, you feel invincible, you're not going to buy insurance, um, we're just going to keep you on your parents' plan, that's mm-hmm. the easiest way, so well, that's the first thing did, uh, one of the first things it did, um, it did require, there was an individual mandate. People had to purchase insurance. And, and the reason for that was because um, of this concept that health economists use called the three-legged stool. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this image that says, well, there are these three aspects that have to exist in order for an insurance market to be stable. Mm-hmm. Um, we, wanna, we want to implement guaranteed issue, which means that an insurance company cannot uh, deny you insurance for a pre-existing condition. Uh-huh. Um, so that's the first thing. But if you have guaranteed issue, the incentive is for you to wait until you have a condition and need the insurance to then purchase the insurance. 
Um, and as we've discussed, right. at that point, insurance has to be very expensive. So it's that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So if we're going to have guaranteed issue, we have to have the individual mandate, which means you can't be denied, but everyone's got to buy insurance. And that way we have a big pool. We have the healthy and the sick, the people who don't know what conditions might pop up. Mm -hmm. um, and so that helps keep the costs manageable. And then the last piece is, okay, well, we don't, we want this to be affordable, right? The Affordable Care Act, it's in the name. Mm -hmm. um, so for people who still may find the price of insurance at that point unaffordable, we're going to offer tax subsidies. And so we're going to help, oh. we're going to help uh, subsidize for low income individuals, um, the, the cost of insurance. And, and the way that was practically implemented was through um, exchanges, some of which are state-based, others are federal. In exchange, huh. just an online marketplace for insurance. You can go online today um, and look up to see what you're eligible for. There are different tiers mm -hmm. of insurance available. Um, you can see, you know, you can play around with uh, the numbers and see where you're eligible for tax subsidies or not, what it might cost. Mm -hmm. um, the other aspect is all the, all the plans on these exchanges have to qualify um, or, or cover basic aspects of care, certain preventative care items, et cetera. So it levels the playing field. Insurance can be very opaque. Healthcare in general can be very opaque to the consumer. Mm -hmm. um, but at least someone going to the exchange says, well, I know any plan on here I purchase will have these basic um, core provisions provided. Right. Um, and I don't think a lot of teenagers definitely, I mean, because around this time, I think we definitely wouldn't have been old enough to understand <laughs> what the what the act actually was when it got passed. So I don't think a lot of kids really realize what it actually entails. And I didn't even know about the nutrition food label thing with the, that was part of the act either. So, yeah, um, part, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, like but uh, but yeah, I mean, there's still, it's still a very uh, sort of monumental bill, like you said, um, in, in, in regards to like healthcare and, and politics and lawmaking. Um, so yeah, so thank you, Dr. Durkis, to, uh, for being on the podcast. Um, I'm sure our listeners got a plethora of knowledge about nursing and healthcare policy, all topics that they would be interested in, in probably looking further into. Um, and so thank you. Do you have anything to add before we end? No, just to thank you, Shivani. It was a fun conversation. Yeah.